Uh, Before we get into today's sermon, I just wanted to do two things. I wanted to read to you, if that was okay, a prayer that I wrote the other day, just as part of my daily devotions and routine and prayer pattern. And it was, we got home Wednesday, uh, we got home Thursday. Uh, Yeah, I think we, we, like many of you, were without electricity and everything was coming in. We were as prepared as we could be and everybody was just on edge this week. We're stressed out. We're emotional. We're anxious. We got home. We stayed with some friends and I went back and forth to our house uh, twice a day to make sure the water pipes were working. And I know when I left them, it's just this odd thing. Right, And this doesn't happen to us in first world countries very often, where you pull away from your home and you literally have no control over what's going to happen. And the feeling of having no control is just not something we live with regularly. It's not something we preach and teach our kids. And it's just unsettling. And we don't make space in our lives, especially in the American life, for lament. We don't lament not even a word we hear very often, is it? And I got home, our pipes were okay, everything was good. I'm still kind of in this post-traumatic stress disorder where I left my water running last night even though I didn't have to, right? And I'll probably do it again tonight. I left it running uh, before we came here just because you did it and it's so energy draining and anxiety driven that it's just something you do and think about. So finally Thursday we get home, the pipes are, or Wednesday, was it Wednesday or Thursday? Thursday, everything was okay. First thing we did, me, Veronica, and my daughter, we thank God that we're okay, our son's okay in the dorm, all that stuff happening. And, um, and then I started feeling really guilty that I started feeling thankful. Right? Is that anybody else? You just start feeling bad. I didn't want to post my thankfulness on social media, right? I didn't want to say, I didn't want to post a picture of my house because I I saw that we were flooding and I couldn't come up here. Uh, We actually went to stay with somebody from the last church we came at and they had five inches of water in the sanctuary. And, um, and they went up there and I said, and I felt bad because those are my friends and I couldn't go help them because I had to plan for today and this is my job and I'm telling them this. And so finally Thursday I woke up and I did my prayer routine again and I just read through a psalm that I want to read to you and then I just want to read the psalm to you and then just if we can collectively after I read this prayer just say a big amen. Is that okay? Is that all right? And then, um, and, and then I promise you it's for something. It's, and then we're also going to pray for Paul and Monica's. They're our head greeters. Uh, they lead the greeting ministry. We're going to pray for their niece. For many, many of you that know, they have a family member that is dealing with some pretty, a young family member, some pretty intense COVID complications. And uh, it took a dire turn for the worse today. And so they are always somebody, when I walk through and, and I greet them, I think of that verse in Corinthians where Paul is saying, remember these people, and, and Paul names these people specifically, and he says it's because they're committed to the household of faith. And what if, for whatever reason, and Paul and Monica, if you're watching, when I walk through and I see them there every Sunday the last uh, couple of months that I've been here, I always think of that verse, you know, to give blessing to those that are committed to the household of faith. That takes a whole nother level because they're here week in, week out. So here's, we're going to, I'm going to read this prayer. We're going to pray for them. Here's what I read on Thursday. And it says this, if we can just collectively pause. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the angels, you shine forth. Before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, you stir up your might, and we need you to come save us. Restore us, O God, 
Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you seem angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears, and you have given us tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies sometimes laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You have brought us as a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted us. You cleared the ground for us. We took deep root and filled the land. The mountains covered us with shade. The mighty cedars filled us with branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then, O God, have you broken down our walls so that all who pass along the way pluck our fruit? The boar from the forest ravages us, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, and have regard for this vine, this stalk that you yourself have planted. And for the son whom you made strong for yourself, you, they have burned with fire, and they have cut it down. May those who laugh perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong. Then, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. And, I'm, and this is what I wrote. I really meditated on the phrase that kept repeating itself, Restore us, O Lord. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And then I added again. And I began to think of everything that happened this week and everything that's happened this year within our Christian community and, in our, and just globally. And, and I'm really thankful for the scriptures and the Psalms that were just so honest about their feelings, right? I've, I've, I've moved in my life and quit praying how I think God wants me to pray and really have just begun to pray how I feel because God already knows it. And here's what I wrote down when I pray. And there's a whole other list of things that I went to. But this was just my prayer. God, you see us here in Texas. Pipes are bursting because of the freeze. This is after what happened in January in our capital, after an election, after all of the summer with the racial dialogue, after all of the COVID restrictions, after all of our disagreements, and God, I don't know where it stops. And there's friends that used to text me that don't text me anymore, and I think they're mad, but they'll never say it. I'm tired of hearing the word unprecedented, God. And so I just ask that you would shine on us again, and I'm believing that you're going to move in an unprecedented way. And all who agree with that, would you just say a hearty amen? amen. God, move in an unprecedented way. And Lord, we just pray for Paul and Monica and their family now. God, one more thing that they're having to deal with. And God, we're tired of hearing unprecedented. But we just want to redeem that word, and we pray for those of us that are sitting here and watching online. God, that our Christian life and walk with you, that we would no longer take it as we have, but that we would take the seriousness of our Christian faith in an unprecedented way. Heal Monica's niece. God, the text that they sent, it didn't seem like there was any hope past today. But you are the God 
that can do far above anything that we can ever ask or think or see. And we just appeal to you and say, God, move in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. We're going to show that bumper one more time before we start. continue on our series. We hope everybody's been enjoying the series we've been doing called Undoing. And if you have your Bibles, the text I'm going to read today is from the book of Hebrews. It's where I've been doing my Bible reading the last couple of weeks. And um, there's just a scripture passage in there that goes along with what we are going to preach about today that I think is really fitting. And uh, there's a lot of myths, isn't there, about following Jesus and what it means to really follow Jesus. And there's a lot of myths of what it means to follow Jesus as an American. One of my favorite stories that I heard through my Christian education experience in my undergraduate and graduate work, there's actually a book called uh, Reading Scripture Through Western Eyes, right? And, uh, or Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. And uh, they reference shortly this story of this gentleman who did this kind of exhaustive study. And basically what he did is he went to, he went to some seminaries in the United States. He went to some seminaries in Russia. He went to some seminaries or Bible colleges, institutes in Africa. And he asked uh, just a plethora of students one important question. He said, in one minute, or maybe it was two minutes, retell me the story of the prodigal son, and then I want you to tell me why the prodigal son ended up the way he did. Have you guys heard this one before? Okay, so maybe some of us have. And so here's what happened. 100% of the American Christian seminary students said the prodigal son ended up the way he is because he squandered all of his goods. And then he goes to Russia, right? And then he goes to Russia and he does the same thing. And something like close to 90% of the Russian seminary students said the prodigal son ended up the way he is because there was a famine. And they didn't even mention the squandering of goods. And then he goes into Africa and in these different countries, Tanzania, Uganda, Congo, um, all of these Central East African countries. None of them mentioned squandering his goods. None of, some of them touched on a famine, but almost every one of them mentioned that he was a stranger in a strange land, and there was no one to show him hospitality. And the reality is, is if you read that story, all of those pieces of the parable are in there. But what people did is they looked for what happens in their cultures, right? As Americans, we're, we're Americans, right? You just got to work hard and put your nose to the grindstone and pull up your bootstraps and work hard. And the only way you would ever possibly be in that position is if you made wrong choices. And of course, in Russia, they had just come out of, uh, you know, World War II, and there were still many that were living, and that there was definitely people that during World War II and, 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 and um, just the attack on Stalingrad that they, the, the Germans attacked and just encompassed them, that there were many that 
died because of famine. In fact, I think some, and I could be wrong, I didn't, I didn't look this one up, but I think something like one-third of the city during that siege died because of famine. So during a famine, you have to squander your goods, right? Things that are valuable mean nothing if you are not eating to survive. Of course, then in Africa where everything's very communal, you're fine. No matter what happens, you're fine as long as you're within your community and you have your family to take care of you because it's what you do for others. And it's just expected. And so sometimes some of the myths of following Jesus is we make following Jesus what's culturally appropriate and well-mannered in our culture without thinking that really if you look through and read the Gospels sometimes, not all the time, and I'm one that would say Jesus definitely wasn't offensive, but he wasn't afraid to offend people. And he wasn't, not that so much that he wasn't afraid to offend people, but he wasn't afraid to offend the religious systems established that took advantage of people. And so one of the myths of following Jesus is this. It's that we can keep following Jesus the way we've lived our life before we gave our life to Jesus. Not understanding that for many of us, we're living the same life, some of us for years, without really coming to the crucial point of letting Jesus be the Lord not just the Savior of our life. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote that great book, Cost of Discipleship, said, there are many of us who want forgiveness from our sins, but we don't want deliverance from our sins. And so I want to read this passage and then just pause and pray and ask God to open our hearts. And I want to ask you and beg you to stay with me for the next 30 minutes or so. Somebody can start a timer, and if I go beyond, maybe wave a flag at me. And if it's good, I may go beyond. And, and I'm going to try not to get too expressive to scare you all, all right? So, so here we go. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I love the book of Hebrews. In the past... God spoke through the prophets to our ancestors in many times and in many ways. In these final days, though, He has spoken to us through His Son. God made His Son the heir of everything and created the world through Him. The Son is the light of God's glory, the imprint of God's being. He maintains everything with His powerful message after He carried out the cleansing of people from their sins. He sat down at the right side of the, ma the highest majesty. And the Son became so much greater than the other messengers, such as the angels, that he received a more important title than theirs. Here's the thing I want you, I'm going to read that one more time, but here's the thing that I want you to remember. When you leave today and you get in the car, right, this is the kids' church thing we've done for years, and, and, and you turn to your parents, or you turn to your spouse, or you turn to your adult kids, and you say, man, what did you guys talk about today in church? What was the big idea? Here it is. Following Jesus means that I have to follow him every day, and I have to follow him everywhere. And tomorrow, he's the God of Mondays. I have to follow him every day, and I have to follow him everywhere. And sometimes that might be 
uh, super dysfunctional work or school. It might be a, a, an exam that you maybe hadn't studied for, and you got to be honest. No matter what situation you are going to be in tomorrow and the next and the next and the next year and the next decade, we never leave that first truth of every day and everywhere following Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's only because of Jesus, and it's only ever going to be because of Jesus. And if you read through the Hebrews, I love Hebrews for this reason, because it's a letter. We don't know who wrote it. Some say Paul, same Apollos. A, a few scholars think that maybe a, a woman wrote it. That's why they didn't attach her name to it, and I'm okay with that. I, Man, you go, girl. That's what I say when I read the book of Hebrews. And this is why I believe it was probably written by a woman, too, is because it makes complete sense, and it doesn't get lost, and it stays on track. <laughs> you read Paul's letters, they're all over the place, right? You, what in the world is he even saying? He didn't even make sense, but Hebrews make sense. And it's written to a group of people who started following Jesus and established churches like we're sitting in today. And they had been Christians for decades. And this letter comes back to these churches and they're saying, don't stop following Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He is. This is how God in the last final day revealed and expressed himself fully. We don't no longer need these prophetic messages to shape nations, the fullness of of God's glory deified as incarnated himself in the flesh in the man Jesus Christ who is crucified and buried according to the scriptures and resurrected and sit, now sit, ascended and sits at the right hand of the father who is our high priest who makes intercessions for us who because he was human understands our weaknesses and therefore let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as some have done and then it goes through the hall of faith and it names all of these patriarchs who are just human. And at the very end it says, they searched for a place whose builder and maker was God. They were exiles on the earth. And therefore, and because of that, we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, this communi communion of saints eternally, that is the patriarchs from the beginning to the patriarchs in the future that are now sitting in, uh, sitting in, in, in paradise in heaven beholding Jesus face to face and they're looking at you now saying, don't give up. It's only about Jesus still. Not about your comfort. Some of us were slain by the sword in half at the altar. Some of us were put in prison. And if we did it, you can too. If we made it through exile and having eyes gouged out and being removed from our land and stayed faithful, you can get through 2020. You know, I often think this last year, as I've seen a lot of my close friends leave the churches they had been at for years for a plethora of reasons, some from the same church for different reasons because they felt the church wasn't preaching their personal value enough even though they are on separate sides. And I had a conversation with one of them and I just wondered out loud. I know we read about the great falling away and we think that that's something very sinful and perverse and something that is evident, right? That of course we're surely going to know. And I just said, man, I wonder if, man, you're just 
part of this great falling away that's wanting to go to places that are scratching your ears because it's being preached what you want preached about and you're really not being challenged. You're only getting around people who think like you, who look like you, who act like you, who, like the, who love the same songs as you. And of course it's bold to say those things when you're around everybody who thinks the same. But man, what if this is the great falling away? And if what we're, we're just supposed to remember that it's always been and it is and it always will be just about Jesus. Nothing more and definitely nothing less. So I want to read that one more time. And I want to, when it says the Son and He, I'm just going to put Jesus' name in. And when I say Jesus, if you would just let that man awaken your heart. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, he has spoken to us by Jesus, whom he has appointed the heir of all things through him also He created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much more superior to any angel as the name that Jesus has inherited is more excellent than theirs. It's only about Jesus. I want to make a bold statement before we begin. But before we begin that, let's just pause and pray. All right? Pray for this sermon. Pray for you. Um, I know you probably thought I already started on this sermon, but I'm just, that's my expressiveness, Chris. (laughs) Let's, uh, Let's pause and pray. Jesus, we love you. God, it's, Jesus, it's only about you. And God, awaken our hearts and our minds to that now. Remind us of that. And cause some of us that may not have seen that so clearly to see that clearly now. Amen. I want to make a bold statement before we begin. And I want you just right where you're sitting to survey your life at this point. Okay, with all of life's bends and curves, all of the detours, all of the roadblocks. Maybe it didn't end up exactly the way you envisioned it when you were younger. Maybe those of us who sat in second and third grade and had to write on a piece of paper, what did we want to be when we grew up? And outside of a few of us, definitely none of us are there. I wanted to be the strongest man in the world. Let me tell you, that has not happened I wanted to, then I wanted to be the fastest man in the world, right? I even had this arrow, and this true story. I even had this, and Jeremy Van Gron, again, I'm going to tell this story, and I am so sorry. Uh, I even had this aerodynamic run, right, where I realized, when I learned about wind resistance in elementary school, I thought if I had my hands like this and I put my, ha- my head down, somehow I would run faster. And I was one of the fastest kids in my class. It, it was between me and this other kid named Prentice Rios, and more times, than we, more times than not, when we raised Prentice, I won. And I remember we did this big track meet at school, and 
I convinced my, it was Prentice Rios, me, and then my buddy Jeremy Van Gron, again, love you, Jeremy. Uh, he, we were like the fastest kids in our class, in the third grade class. And I convinced Jeremy, because he was my friend, I said, hey, my family's going to come watch. And they said they're going to do something really bad if I don't win. you got to let me win. Super ridiculous, but third graders believe that stuff. And he said, okay, I will let you win. And so, man, I thought, you know what? And here's the reality. No one was going to come watch me win. I, was just gonna, I just wanted to win. Um, but uh, the day of the race... They, did the tr- they were going to do the track meet after lunch, and it was hot dog day, so I ate like three hot dogs because I loved hot dogs, and I still love hot dogs. That is like my weakness. I love a good hot dog and a good sausage, a good bratwurst, anything, a good corn dog. And right before the race, my stomach started gurgling, and I didn't have time to use the facilities, so we went to race, and the whole time I'm trying to, you know, you know, and, and, I'm run- <laughs> and I'm running as fast as I can doing this little stomach-clenching run, right? And, and uh, the whole time, Prentice Rios is in front of me, and Jeremy, my bu- I'm sorry, Jeremy, uh, we, I'm really sorry. In fact, I hadn't seen him like in 25 years, and the last time I went to California, we got together, and he brought that up again. So uh, uh, he brought it up again. You remember that time? I was like, no, I don't, I, no not really. I did. I did. Uh, so I'm doing this stomach-clenching run, and, and the whole time, Jeremy Van Groningen's behind me, and he's, he's whispering. He's saying, Tony, go faster. And I said, I'm trying. And I ended up getting like third place, and he got fourth place. I said all that to say, I did not become the fastest man in the world. None of us, if we survey our life with all the infractions and maintenance and observance and the things done by our own hands for one reason or another, wherever we're at right now, I want you to know and believe this, that where you are right now is where you exactly need to be to keep following Jesus. And how you are right now is exactly who Jesus wants you to be to keep following him. It may not be the invitation we think or want, though, but Jesus continually extends the invitation to us nonetheless, and he still calls out to us regardless of our weaknesses or our decisions or our lack of decisions. He's still waiting for our response. He still offers and extends the call to follow me, and I will make you. But to follow him, we have to leave where we're at and let him make us what he wants us to be and it might not look like how we want to be and no matter how many times you may have ignored that call no matter how many times you've probably never thought about that call he still calls and it's clear and we can still respond to it there is a warning that Jesus gives though in fact right at the beginning probably at the beginning of his ministry away from the crowds he pulls his disciples and those closest up to a mountain and he begins to preach this sermon to them about what it means to follow him. And here's what he says. He basically says, you know, all, all, everything that goes on in the world, you know how we structure things in our, our hierarchical system. I know I said that wrong. That's all right. Uh, but you know how we structure things. Here's how it is in my kingdom. Those that are poor in spirit, those that have no spirit in them and are depressed and you don't have any motivation, the kingdom of God belongs to you. 
those who are merciful. And maybe you've letting people take advantage of you and your family asks you why and you have this bleeding heart. You will receive. When you're persecuted and people make fun of you and they won't eat with you at work or maybe you don't get the promotion because you won't bend your ethical dilemmas and guidelines. He said you are blessed when you are persecuted because that's how they treated the people of God before you. Blessed are you. That's my kingdom. And Jesus said, but you got to, a little while longer, he says, you got to be careful about one thing because many are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And they will say to me, but we have done many great works in your name. We have healed the sick. We have cast out demons. We have cast out devils. We have worked miracles. We have given to projects. We have given to projects in India. We have done our tithes. We've showed up every Sunday. But he's going to say, but you don't know me. I was really bothered years ago when I first became a Christian. How easily it was for many that I thought were solid Christians to stop being Christians because for me I gave my life to Jesus and that was it you know I, I went home to the same problems I went home to the same life but there was something about Jesus that for one reason or another he just sovereignly revealed himself to me, and, and I accepted it. And there's still a lot of junk to work out. In fact, probably the first nine, ten months of my, my Christian life, I used to literally pray. I'd never said it out loud, but I would think, God, forgive me for what I'm about to do, because I'm still going to do it. And I prayed and I cried afterwards, begging God for forgiveness. And, and during that time, I was filled with the Holy Spirit, as we understand it. I prayed in tongues. I did those things. And, but I, even after that, I would still think, God, I'm still going to do this. And I drove my youth pastor nuts. But here's a challenge I want you to ask yourself here. At this point of my life, am I still following Jesus not liking Jesus not being not knowing about Jesus but not working for Jesus but following Jesus and it's nothing that's not new in fact you know the very first time one of the very first times it's definitely the first time it was recorded by a government source about the Christian community it was probably right around, I think it was 112 A.D., and it was by this governor named Pliny the Younger. I don't think it was the elder. There's two of them. I think it was Pliny the Younger. And he's writing to Emperor Trajan, and, and, and all of his letters were saved. There's something like 250 of them. And Pliny the Younger is writing, and he's discussing, and this is just complete my complete church history Bible nerd right here oozing out, but this is really cool. Uh, he writes, and he goes, oh, by the way, and I think he was like in Turkey, Pliny the Elder was, modern-day Turkey. He says, also, there's this fraction of group of people over here. What do you want me to do with them? And I'm paraphrasing a lot. He says, they, they meet on the first day of the week, before dawn, before they go to work. They sing these songs to this guy named Crestus, almost like he's deified. What do you want me to do about it? Here's what Pliny writes. This is the beautiful thing. He says, they're unique. Because at that time, you know, the plebes went with the plebes, the upper class went with the upper class, the government officials went with the government officials, the men went with the women, and so forth and so on and what have you. And Pliny says, 
there's rich and there's poor. There's slave and there's free. There's men and there's women. There's young and there's old. There's Jew and there's Gentile. And I don't know what to make of this. And they meet together and they remind themselves to be honest in the marketplace. They don't care about being rich. That's a great representation of the church. Because it's just not coming from Scripture, but we're seeing Scripture filled out, recognized by government officials. And they don't seek power in the government, he says. They just are coming together to continue in remembering this guy named Crestus, who we know is Christ. But here's the sad thing. Pliny says when we put persecution on them, some of them actually say we used to be Christians, but we're no longer Christians because it got hard. That has been happening since the beginning. And it's a crisis. It's a crisis for us. It's a crisis for the church. And, and, and unfortunately, it's a crisis because sometimes in the first world evangelical church, we unknowingly propagate this. You know, the first time I heard that, I remember it vividly. We did this youth event. We did this outreach event. And, and it was right at the beginning of American Idol. And all the youth leaders said, hey, what if we invite our high schools? Fresno had like uh, I think nine high schools and we did this big talent show and we did it every week for four weeks and at the end of it we brought all the winners back and we, you know, who, what school's going to have the most kids here and there's something like 600, 700 kids, teenagers there from high school and, and, and I remember a friend of mine who was the main youth leader getting up to give the altar call at the final night of this four week long outreach that we prayed and fasted over and believed people were going to get saved he said, how many of you don't like your life? and a bunch of hands went up and then he went on on this short little spiel about how teenagers today, and this is like in 1997, right? Teenagers today face things that no one's ever had to before. It's never going to get any worse. Surely, it, you know, the same things we're saying today. And he says, and if you don't like the way your life is, Jesus is here to give you a better life. And man, a bunch of kids came forward and some were crying, but none of them came back because their lives didn't get better. Some of them, their lives got worse because they lost their friends, because they gave their life to Jesus. And even in the churches I grew up in, it was common for many altar calls to use phrases. One that I remember periodically is, man, if you're just sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? Yeah. 20 plus years of being a Christian leader, I'm still sick and tired and waiting for sick and tired to stop. But Hebrews talks about this rest that's coming. We ain't there yet, so that's why we persevere through faith and patience. Now, but that was some of those churches and teenagers are super emotional, so we understand that their lives are never going to be what their lives want because if you're a teenager listening, we have, and this was me at 17, we have no handle on what life is to begin with, so of course our lives are upset, right? One of the things that I loved about going to kids' camp is sixth grade girls, they are the biggest divas there are because here's why, they never want to do anything that the kids camp does. They never want to do anything you do in church. And if you ask them what, and if you ask them what do you want to do and they say something and you say let's do that, guess what? They don't, then they don't want to do that then. Those are kids. Now for those of us who are, that are adults, we have a good handle on our life. And we've probably never been in a position to depend on anyone else 
for anything. And that causes another crisis because we think that our life is so good because we serve Jesus the right way. Therefore, those whose lives aren't so good, they're probably just lazy and need to work harder. Not taking into account maybe some other factors that they may be dealing with, whether it's mental illness or past trauma or the narratives or the places that they come out of. Here is the biggest myths, and I'm going to try to stay true and do white church today and not my church, all right? Uh, I'm going to get back to my sermon. Here are the three big myths we want to look at today. Probably the biggest myth of following Jesus is that I need a burning bush experience to do some very basic principles. I need to feel something. I need to see something. I need to hear something. When we, I don't want to get ahead of myself. And the second myth is this. Following Jesus means it must make sense to me and bring me comfort and a sense of safety, and Jesus only takes me to places that are safe and sanitized because Jesus is probably in those safe and sanitized places. Sometimes we pray in a way for those of us that are in control of our lives, that have never had to depend on anybody for help, or have never had to, or maybe in our adult life, we've built our life in such a way that now we don't, we no longer need to depend on anybody, and we pray in such a way now where we ask God to bless our efforts instead of pausing to ask God what our efforts should be. And I know we all agree with that and that sounds good, but it leads and builds upon this big myth and misconception that subconsciously takes place in our minds. And sometimes I think, and of course I would never admit this, and I know there's probably those of us here who think the same, that we're looking for some burning bush experience from Jesus before we actually do anything. And and we're waiting to answer an invitation that causes us to respond in ways that gives way to our own personalities, right? I'm not an emotional guy, that's why I don't lift my hands. Right? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an emotional guy, that's why I don't show up to prayer meetings. Or you know what, I'm an emotional person who needs all of this learning. And, and, and sometimes we are so geared towards our affections that we never pay attention to our attentions. Or sometimes we're those people that are so given to our attention and our learning that we never develop and build our affections or give our affections place or place to grow. Or we don't do the things that normally we think are affectionate. And here's what I mean by that, right? And this is just base, the, the basic the basic building block of all Christians, and we built on this a couple of weeks ago, is that making Jesus our Lord and following him means we follow him outwardly and inwardly, not one or the other, right? We say, but that's just not how I am. But then we, we push back on other issues that people say, this is how I feel and how I'm born. Well, which one is it? It can't be the one or the other. Now, for me, and I know, it, you know, me and Andy joked about this or talked about this. He says, man, no, you seem really emotional. And I say, well, am I emotional or am I expressive? Because, you no, know, I was talking to Rhett the other day, and he goes, man, you're, you're more of a thinker than I am. And I was like, well, I don't know if I'm more of a thinker. I don't know what I am at this point. I just know I love Jesus, really. I, I, I've taken so many of those personality tests, they make my mind hurt. I just love, I just love Jesus, man. I just want to eat, sleep, and drink Jesus. And, uh, but coming, I understand that coming out of a very American, Hispanic household, that I'm a very expressive person. 
And I, and I, I was birthed in a church that was very emotional and expressive. So for me, I've had to learn how to love God with my mind and learn really about what I'm believing. And I have friends of mine who, and, and there are those of us here who are the opposite. We are more cerebral. We love learning. We just love knowing about it and knowing about the truth. But for those of us who are like that, we also have to exercise those practices. We give Jesus and make Jesus Lord of our attentions and of our affections, regardless if they line up with what he asks us to do or not. Sometimes we make Jesus, serving Jesus what comes easy to us and what feels good to us. Thinking in our first world problematic culture that surely if it doesn't feel right, then it can't be God. The other myth, I think, or building off that is that we only decide to follow Jesus once when Jesus says those who want to be his disciples must give up their life daily and regularly and again and again and again. Following Jesus means we serve him every day and everywhere. Here's an interesting thing that I think Jesus did as well too, is Jesus didn't come to the holy sacred places, right? He went to those places that were unclean. He went to those places that were problematic, and I, 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 I love dwelling on the fact that the real miracle of Christ's incarnation of the God of Israel manifest in the flesh is not that he touched the leper and the leper no longer had leprosy, but that he touched something that was unclean and it was made clean. One of my favorite stories that I think really is the maybe the closest thing to being the theme of my life in the Gospels is the maniac of Gadara that lives amongst the tomb who cuts himself, he wounds himself, he has no clothing, he's banished, and, and, and he's banished away from his community, and he cries and he bemoans, and they lock him up in chains, and they try to control him, but he breaks them. He is uncontrollable, and Jesus heals him. And he wants to actually go with Jesus and follow Jesus. He wants to be one of his disciples. And we make so much of Jesus saying, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. But Jesus actually told this person, go home and show the works of God to the people who knew you at your worst. Now, I added that last part, but that's essentially what Jesus is saying. Live among those who knew you at your worst and show them that you are different. And then when Jesus comes back, of course, they kick him out, but then when Jesus comes back, many recognize, and I love to speculate, that I think they believed in Jesus because they saw this man that went home and lived in the same place and space, and they saw different. And when Jesus said, go home, there's another way that can be read. I actually think that Jesus meant, you can go home now. You couldn't go home before because you were unclean, but now you can go home. And Jesus makes those that are in solitude and separated from community and fellowship and the church, the real miracle is the solitude find a home. And you know who I am in that story when I said that's my image? Is I'm not the maniac. I'm the village who has to receive and welcome back this maniac. And he might pop off and I might get scared and wonder if he's going to start yelling again and he might but I have to make space 
for this maniac. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But it's hard to love a world that we don't know. And it's hard to know a world that we're not near. We're called here, and we're called now, and we're called tomorrow, and we're called in a space and a state to follow him that we're in now presently, and you don't need any burning bush. Jesus is the burning bush, and because we have the full revelation of the Godhead incarnated, and we have the writings of those who beheld him with their eyes and touched him with their hands and heard him with their ears, this is our bush And he calls us now to follow him, even though you don't need to feel anything. That's why Hebrews goes on in chapter 2 to say, this is why you need to pay more attention to Jesus. And in chapter 3 it says, and now we're part of this calling. We are joining with Jesus to be a part of this calling that are calling others. Jesus is the sign that you need and that I need. And he's that sign daily. And he dwells in places that are uneasy. And he makes those spoiled and soiled and those dirty spaces sacred because he's there and he shows up. So what do we do? If Jesus is the sign, and those are some of the myths, how do we follow that sign? Now, I have to add this caveat here and parenthetically say that this is not the sign for those who are unbelieving yet. This is the sign for us now that Jesus, Jesus' example and Jesus' life and Jesus' scripture and the continual formation of our own spirit life that has to exude in every aspect of our life, it's the sign for us to constantly be transformed. How do we follow the sign? We continually transform ourselves to be the image of Christ. In everything we do, we're called to join and exemplify Jesus Jesus by continually laying our life down. We, we respond and we continually every day run and abandon everything and go to Christ. We set our affections to become Christ and we set our minds to express Christ wherever we may be in all of our life that's lived from this moment forward, forsaking the things that are behind us and pressing on, like Paul wrote, it requires our constant conversion, our daily devotion to God, and our regular reflection and asking ourselves, am I doing this right? Did I do it right before and maybe I just stopped doing it? Am I doing it right or am I not doing it anymore because I thought this should be a feeling and an emotional sensation and make me happy? We are called to be transformed. Now, here's something for us here. This has been a fantastic series and next week we're going to do more of a panel and talk about our calling and I love that. There's nothing I love more. I wish we could just sit around in a circle, stay after church and tell stories and narrations and fellowship and talk about callings and and you know it wasn't until probably about 2 years ago I really understood what my calling was and for me it took spending a whole lot of money and going to seminary and having some degree that I'm even kind of embarrassed to put up. And realizing just through telling my story and hearing other story that I really am called to pastor. 
I don't know if I'll ever lead a church. I hope I do. I pray I do, but I'm called a pastor. And if something happens tomorrow and I go and work in a school, I'm going to be a pastor. If I go and work in an office, I'm going to be a pastor. If I go and work for, in a construction company, I'm going to be a pastor. And I'm going to shepherd and include and care and carry others' burdens and teach the scriptures. But I realized that my calling at that time was this, that my calling was to be for my, my, my calling was to be for others what I always wished I had and didn't. And that the space for my calling is the local body of believers. Now, it took me a lot of money. And if you want to pay that money, I'll walk you through that process myself. If you want to pay what I paid. Or borrowed, really. If you want to pay what I borrowed. And that can help me pay off what we borrowed. But the series after, we're going to do a series called Reimagine. For many of us that know and are aware, this last Wednesday, in the midst of everything, the season for the church of Lent began. And Lent is just this beautiful, dangerous season of reflecting and revaluing in our lives and wondering if we're still following Jesus and asking ourselves and really turning our affections and attentions to God and saying, what do I need to start that I hadn't at this point? And what do I need to lay down that I've refused at this point? We're going to be talking about Lent. We're going to be going through some practices. Uh, we're going to reimagine our lives again seasonally. So through March until Easter, you want to be here for that. And I love how Lent ends on Easter celebrating the resurrection. And I just want to challenge you with this. If you have never been baptized publicly with your own local church of believers visually to confess that you are now identifying with the sufferings of Christ, we are going to try to do baptisms that day. The world being the way it is, we don't know if we're going to have a volcano that day, but we want to celebrate Christ's work in our life. So don't miss out on that. But here's what else you do. And I put some scriptures up here. Can we show those New Testament scriptures? We constantly reflect on the scriptures that those who have touched Jesus physically and have heard Jesus with their own ears, and have seen Jesus with their own eyes. They left us instructions. And I just picked out a few. They're all over. You have to learn the Word. You have to learn the Scriptures because they tell you about the Word. And these are a few of them. If you read through, and, and I love this, that at the very end of their lives, right? So at the very end of Paul's life, after he evangelized and healed, and he's writing back to these established Christians, some of these churches probably for 30 or 40 years, and they're writing him for instructions. What do we do regarding these situations? And this is what they say. They say, keep being transformed. Keep being transformed from glory to glory. Because what will be can, but it has not yet appeared. And though our, our outer self is wasting, and for some of you, you're our, this is Paul, not me. Our outer self has been wasting for a long time, but the inner man and, or human, for some of you ladies, is still being renewed day by day by day by day. And then they write about fruits of the Spirit, which are supposed to be a sign. They're fruits. They're not feelings and emotions. They're practices, peace and joy and patience. Those aren't emotions. Those are practices, and those are practices that are fruit and that are grown and that are grown in seasons, and it takes time, but you got to start practicing them. But those fruits are a sign that we're walking 
walking in the Spirit. When I exude patience, even though I feel nothing, I'm walking in the Spirit. When I practice joy, even though I don't feel happiness, I'm walking in the Spirit and not in my flesh. And then the gifts in Romans and Ephesians and Corinthians that are meant for the building and collect. Paul, at the end of his life, is still saying, you are offering these things to continue to build up the church for posterity. And then there's the armor that lets us know that the world is still broken and we are never, never going to make it in our image. We are in exile. So you need truth and righteousness and faith and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to continue persevering and to continue following Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means that we follow Jesus everywhere and every day with every ounce of strength and emotion no matter what tomorrow holds. Would you bow your heads with me? Sean, can you come up and start playing, please? And if you believe that, if you agree with that, and if you love Jesus, can you just say a big amen? Amen. Can you say that name? Can you just say Jesus? Can you say it again? Can you just say Jesus? And I don't want to go into kids' church mode here, but I want to see if my left side is going to say that and mean it more than my right side. Can we just say it again and say Jesus? It's always been about Jesus. It's only about Jesus. And it's never going to be anything but Jesus. And can you just start right where you're at praying and telling God that it's all about Jesus? I may not have, I may not have made it all about Jesus before, but I want to make it all about Jesus With your heads bowed and eyes closed, we're just going to take some time to reflect. And I just want to challenge you this week. I know we give the digging deeper out, and it's something we take home, and it seems so quick, but don't bypass those things. And through the next few weeks, as we continue and finish the series next week, as we, we're going to jump into Lent the beginning of March and start reimagining our lives. We're going to do Lent in the Pentecostal way, which means short with a lot of passion. Can you just start asking Jesus now if there's an area of your life that's not fully crucified and handed over to Him? We use phrases a lot in our Christian world. We say, the Lord is still dealing with me on this. And if I can interpret that another way just to challenge you, how I feel it when I say that is, I have refused to give this up to the Lord. And if I, if I feel really bad, I'll say this. I'll say, Satan still has this on me. That's what we used to challenge the kids with in South Dallas. Satan still has got this on me. And I want nothing more of that. And just right where you're at, Man, for the next few weeks, start pressing in, start praying, start asking God to fill you with more of Him, and let our prayer be the prayer of John the Baptist when others were looking and saying, we're losing our following, and John looked at Jesus and said, He must increase, 
And for him to increase, I got to decrease. God, let us decrease here. Can you just keep praying? We're going to take a few moments before we close and just ask God, God, where do I need to decrease? Can you just pray that out loud, loud enough for you to hear right now?